Welcome to the Unnamed Adventures Podcast. This podcast, we share the never-ending story of our life, of Amy and Jake's, from the traditional lifestyle into one where we travel nomadically and live debt-free since April of 2019. Of course, with our two dogs, Sammy, a rambunctious red healer, and Pippi, our ball-loving yellow lab. Each episode, we all share our experience, travel tips, and cool things we've learned while on the road. We'll adventure to new places, learn and try new things, interview cool people, and share our experiences with you. On today's episode, we're going to share some cool historical stories from Glacier Park to include Ranger Tales and a story by Ken Dahl at Glacier Park Lodge in 1967. If ever foxes were hired to guard a hen house, it was some of the original rangers hired for Glacial Park. Joe Coastley and Dan Duty had been avid trappers before the park was founded, and they were notorious poachers afterward. Glacier had rangers six years before the National Park Service was organized. Congress and President Taft created Glacier Park in 1910. Major William Logan was appointed as its initial superintendent. Logan hired six rangers, including Coasley and Duty, and assigned each man to patrol a large sector of the park's border. Duty had the Nyack area, where he maintained a homestead. Jack Holterman's Place Names of Glacier National Park relates Dan and his formidable wife, Josephine, the duties had three stills on their ranch, and their booths became so popular that the railmen would stop the trains at duty siding and blow the whistle to the number of courts they wanted. Josephine would row her merchandise across the middle fork of the Flathead River to the siding and sometimes have the railmen over for dinner, too. Dan did not remain a park ranger for long. He was more interested in his mine and poaching, and even led poaching expeditions into the park. Joe Coastley had the Belly River area, where he apparently named Coastley Lake and Coastley Ridge after himself. He was a flamboyant personality. Halterman's relates he named lakes and glacier after his lady friends, including Lois, Bertha, Elizabeth, and Helena, and carved arrows through hearts on a trail of trees. Tall and good-looking, he sported mustaches, a goatee, a red voyeur stash, and earrings, and the fanciest clothes his trapper skins could buy. Their images are picturesque, but the life of the early rangers was hard and audacious. David Robinson states, and through the years of Glacier National Park, the ranger force during those earlier days was rugged, hard bed and outfit. Each foot of the park boundary was assigned to one particular man, and he was responsible for patrolling of it, winter and summer, often operating from small, crude cabins that would make the present-day patrol cabins seem like a mansion. These men travel their beat alone, and many are tales of accidents, even deaths, resulting from these lone patrols through the mountains in the dead of winter. One of the rangers froze to death on the trails between the cabin on the eastern side of the park. Another was buried in a snowslide for 24 hours. He had managed to dig himself out and worked his way back to the station. Still another slid down the snowbank and broke his hip, which resulted in a grueling two-day trip back to the cabin unaided. Such were the odds against these men, yet they liked the work and would have it no other way. Albert, Death on the Trail Reynolds, was one of the early rangers. Originally served as a ranger with the Forest Service, 
which had control over the area before the park was formed. He was not among the first six rangers appointed for Glacier Park, but was hired when a ranger force was expanded to 16 men in 1912. Reynolds looked like an Old Testament prophet with a great snowy beard. His photographs gave him a feeble appearance, but he had phenomenal energy. His nickname came from his vigor as a hiker. He disdained horses in an air when amongst everyone rode and covered great distances on the trail. Reynolds worked in the McDonald Valley as a Forest Service Ranger. In 1905, he and another man constructed a 180-foot bridge across McDonald Creek, which was sturdy enough for loaded wagons. He also cleared many miles of trail. He invited hikers to make themselves at home in his cabin at Lake McDonald. The latch string hangs on the outside of the door. Eat all you want, but don't carry any more than you can lift, and don't leave any fire burning in the stove. After being hired by the park, Reynolds was assigned the Waterton Valley. He lived in a cabin at Camp Creek, about two miles south of Goat Hut, at the head of Waterton Lake. He formed a close friendship with John Kootenay Brown, the legendary Canadian who was a superintendent of Waterton National Park. He often walked 17 miles to visit Brown, with whom he developed the idea of an international peace park. Reynolds' primary duty was to patrol a border sector of Glacier's boundary, keeping watch for poachers, forest fires, other threats to the park. In late 1912, the superintendent ordered an arbitrary increase in mileage of the patrols and the sub-zero cold and deep snow. Reynolds, hobbled by frostbite, said that his assignment was a patrol no man can make. One day that winter, Reynolds snowshoed down the Waterton Valley to visit Kootenay Brown. He arrived at Brown's cabin half-frozen and ill. Brown tended to him all night and then transported him to Pincher Creek, Alberta. He died there on February 1913 at the age of 65, later fulfilling his nickname, Death on the Trail. Naturalist programs were established in Glacier during the 1920s under the leadership of Dr. Morton Elrod and later Dr. George Rule. These men are just renowned among the leading figures in the history of the park. Dr. Elrod, a professor at the University of Montana, established a program of free guided natural walks in the park in 1922. In subsequent summers, he and some colleagues also gave evening talks with slides as well at Mini Glacier Hotel, the Lewis Hotel, now Lake McDonald, and going to the Sun Chalets. Elrod wrote a famous handbook for Glacier, which became known as Elrod's Guide. His memory still preserved through Elrod's Rock, a huge boulder at the side of the trail approaching Grinnell Glacier. In Elrod's day, the rock was at the edge of the glacier, but the dramatic loss of ice now leaves it about a half mile away, across a stony moraine in a broad meltwater pond. In 1929, Rule was named as Glacier's first permanent naturalist. He established evening programs in the campground to supplement those in hotels. Rule was a robust outdoorsman who soon became immediately familiar with Glacier's hundreds of miles of trails. The Glacier Park Transport Company enlisted him to write its famous driver's manual, which grew to more than 350 pages. Rule served in the Navy during World War II. Returning to the Park Service, he was asked by its director to write a guide to Glacier National Park, which was published in 1949. Rule then went to serve in Crater Lake National Park in Hawaii. 
1969, he returned to Glacier and spent three years traveling all of its trails in order to update the book. The next part of this podcast, we're going to share a story about a holdup at Glacier Park Lodge by Ken Dahl. In 1967, I was the night clerk at Glacier Park Lodge. Roger Barlett was the night auditor. Roger and I would do the night audit after the lounge closed and the hotel had quieted down. One night in August, we are at work on the audit around 1 a.m. Suddenly, Giddon, the security guard, ran through the front door. He was dazed and there was blood on his forehead. Behind him came two robbers with shotguns wearing kitty cowboy hats with bandanas over their faces. We found out later that the robbers had captured Giddon and held him at gunpoint while going through the management office downstairs. They had attempted unsuccessfully to break into the safe there. Giddon ran when their attention was fixed on the safe and they chased him around the building and into the lobby. I turned to Roger and tried to say something, but found that I couldn't speak. Finally, I managed to tell the robbers that they could have the money we had, which was almost a few hundred dollars at most. They really weren't interested, though. It was a day before payday, and they knew that there was cash in the safe in the office below. In those days, Glacier Park, Inc. cash employed checks on site. Just then, a young honeymoon couple walked in the hotel. Now there were five of us held at gunpoint. The robbers were clearly uncomfortable and didn't want to be in the lobby. Now a telephone call from a room rang at the switchboard behind the front desk. It was an old-fashioned switchboard at which I had to plug the cords into the hole in order to make the connections. I could see that the caller was the hotel nurse, Mary McDonald. She had a room on the top floor with direct view of the front desk. The robbers didn't want me to answer, but I told them that the caller was a guest and that guests knew that the front desk was open all night. When I answered, Mary said that she could see the robbers. She asked for an outside line so she could call the police. I told her the kitchen was closed and that room service was not available. The robbers wanted to leave. They decided to take us all through the dining room and the kitchen and out the back door. Roger and I told them that the second security guard was on patrol, but they didn't believe us. As we emerged through the back door of the hotel, there was a gunshot. Joe, the second security guard, had been waiting outside and he had fired his pistol into the air to frighten the robbers. Management later told us that they were unaware that Joe carried a gun. As the shot rang out, one robber grabbed me, and the other one grabbed Roger. The honeymoon couple and Giddon fled. We pleaded with the robbers to let us go. The robbers told us to start running and not look back. Roger and I sprinted halfway down the first fairway of the golf course. Finally, we stepped into the inky darkness and realized that we were safe. We slowly made our way back to the hotel. The next morning, Joe, the security guard, put a felt cowboy hat on the floor outside of my room and knocked on the door. I opened the door and saw the hat and slammed the door shut. Joe started laughing. Real funny. The robbers were never found. Thank you for listening to the Unnamed Adventures podcast. If you like what you heard, Rate our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, check out our website at unnamedadventures.com. <laughs>